Welcome to the Mind Sensei Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and I'll be taking you on a journey to the world of martial arts and introduce listeners to some of the most aspiring and knowledgeable practitioners from around the world. Whether you're a seasoned martial artist or a curious beginner, or just enjoy hearing a great story, the Mind Sensei Podcast Down Under has something for everyone. So tune in, sit back, and let us take you on a journey through the world in martial arts. Welcome to the Mind Sensei Podcast, where we delve into the depths of the human mind and explore the fascinating world of martial arts, personal development and beyond. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and today we have a very special guest joining us, the esteemed ninth degree master, Brian Duffy, the founder of American Kempo Federation. Master Brian Duffy's journey in the realm of Kempo Karate began in 1970, when he first stepped onto the path of martial arts. However, it wasn't until 1972 he truly embarked on his transformative journey by training directly under the guidance of Sifu Gary Swan, the president of the National Chinese Kempo Karate Association. Notably, the NCKKA was the first Kempo association to separate from the IKKA with the blessings of the legendary Mr. Parker himself. With his dedication and passion for the art, it wasn't long before Mr. Duffy rose through the ranks and became the vice president of the NCKKA in 1978. Throughout his illustrious career spanning over five decades, Mr. Duffy has left an indelible mark in the world of martial arts. His commitment to excellence is evident in his impressive tournament record, having participated in over 124 tournaments and emerged victorious, securing a staggering 157 trophies. These major awards serve as a testament to his exceptional skill and unwavering dedication to his craft. He is also credited as the creator of American Kempo 16 Technique Curriculum developed by Mr. Duffy. It was created to reduce the front end load of the 24 Technique Curriculum, an initial chart of 10 followed by a chart of 24 techniques, by spreading the material over an additional two belt levels. Beyond his achievements in the competitive arena, Mr. Brian Duffy influenced extends far and wide. As the founder of the American Kempo Federation, he has been instrumental in promoting and preserving the art of American Kempo, imparting his wisdom to countless students in shaping the future of martial arts. In this captivating two-part episode on the Mind Sensei podcast, we have the privilege of delving deep into the mind of Master Brian Duffy. We'll explore his remarkable journey, uncover his philosophy and principles that underpin his approach to martial arts and gain invaluable insights into the personal development and self-discovery. Join us as we unravel the mind of a true sensei and discover the profound lessons that lie within. Prepare to be inspired, enlightened and captivated as we embark on this enlightening conversation with legendary 9th degree Kempo master, Brian Duffy. Welcome to the Mind Sensei podcast, where the mind is the ultimate weapon and the spirit knows no bounds. Welcome, Mr. Brian Duffy, to the Mind Sensei podcast. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what inspired you to get started in the martial arts, and how your journey began. Thanks for having me, Peter. It's great to see you again. Haven't seen you in a, almost 10 years now, I guess. Time has traveled, hasn't it? Yes, it has. I got started in the martial arts after I got out of high school. I was actually very small during high school. I, when I graduated high school, I was like five foot four, weighed 110 pounds. I, had, I was in a very late growing spurt. Being a little guy, I decided that I wanted to go ahead and you know be able to defend myself. So I drove down. I was living in San Antonio. That's where I grew up. I drove down to register for college. And when I drove down to register for college, I passed a karate school. And so after I registered for college classes, I stopped back in the karate school and I, I signed up at that school. So that was late August, early September of 1970. So, you know, I've been doing this about 53 years now. I got to tell you, you know, that when I started, I was probably the world's worst student. I don't know what I was expecting when I went into the karate school. I think I was expecting, you know, the fact that I, I paid some money. So I was expecting them to somehow miraculously impart this, this skill and knowledge into me without me having to do any work with it. They'd teach me a lesson and I'd go home and I'd never practice and I'd come back and and they say, show me this or show me that. And I couldn't remember it. So they're they constantly having to reteach me stuff. Did that for about nine months. At the end of my 
first year of college, took a leave of absence. What school was that, sir, the first school you went to? It, it was a Kempo school. It was Kempo Karate, San Antonio on Fredericksburg Road. And it was, at the time, it was a Traco school, which was a Tracy Connors blend. Tom Connors, a guy out of Arizona, and everybody knows who the Tracy brothers are. So that's the group I started with. I took a job at the end of my freshman year of college being a lifeguard. And the same time that the pool was open was the same time the karate school was open. So I took a leave of absence, karate training. And then at the end of the summer, I didn't go back. Uh, about a month later, the new manager of the school called me up and said, you know, hey, you've got some lessons that you've paid for here. And, you know, are you going to use them? You know, I said, well, you know, how many have I got? I thought maybe I had maybe half dozen, dozen, something like that. And I was just going to blow it off. And he said, he said, you got 26 lessons left. That was half of what I paid for. You know, so I said, <laughs> all I could see was like, this is something I paid for. I want to go ahead and get my money's worth. So I went back. And what was different was, you know, my first year in college was a learning experience as well. I didn't do real good my first year of college. And it took me a while to mature enough to the point where I realized that, you know, whatever I was going to do, whether it be college or martial arts, was going to require some effort on my part and that I was only going to get out of it what I put into it. So when I went back the second time. I had a new attitude and actually was very interested in the things they were showing me and moved on from that point steadily. But, you know, it took me took me a while to finally get to that point. Uh, I studied with that group for a couple of years. They got in trouble with the IRS and the schools were being shut down. And then my instructor and, and they had it was it was a chain of schools. So there was a number of different people who were instructors and and managers rolled in and out of the, those locations. So my instructor, Gary Swan, bought that school. He was in Arizona at the time, and there was an opportunity. He was managing schools for a group, and there was an opportunity to, you know, buy one of these schools, and he did. He came to Texas and bought that school, and that was in 1972. And I trained with him, and he was very big contrast from the people who were running the place before. I mean, he was a, a very serious martial artist. And he's one of the best best martial artists that I know. He was a, a great role model and example and a great teacher. And I studied with him. When he came into the school, I was a purple belt. And I studied with him through uh, Fourth Black. And I was a member of his organization, NCKKA. It was actually Steve LeBounty's organization at that time. He was the vice president of the NCKKA. Mr. LeBounty was the president of the organization. So for all us people that don't know... The acronym, what does that stand for, NCKK? NCKK stands for National Chinese Kempo Karate Association. And it was one of the first groups that split away from Mr. Parker from the IKK, but did so with it, but one of the only ones that did so with his blessing. The IKK was a big worldwide organization. You're in Australia, I'm here in Texas, you know, people in Europe. I mean, it, it's a giant organization. And Mr. Labani was looking for more of a smaller family-oriented, tighter-knit group. He and Gary Swan and Gary Swan's first black belt, Cliff McKinney, met with Mr. Parker and explained to him what they wanted to do, right, and that they weren't breaking away from him, but they only wanted their own organization. And Mr. Parker gave them their blessing. And the NCKK continued to support Mr. Parker's endeavors the whole time. Uh, in fact, it's still going right now. It was a separate organization, and that's the primary organization I came up under, like I said, from Purple Belt through Fourth Black. Curriculum that we had. In, Who was your first instructor? Who was my first instructor? Yeah, very first that we started at that Traco school. Um, the head of the schools, and there were five in San Antonio at the time, a guy named Jack Williams. And one of the Black Belts that was there, and he was the manager of the Fredericksburg Road School that I was at for a while was Bob Gibbons, who eventually moved to Louisiana, I believe, moved to New Orleans area. And then there were some other people that would roll in and out as well. There was a guy named Fred Stilley was there for a while, and he's out of Arizona. You know, there was a couple of brothers, the Brodus brothers. Uh, so there, there was a, a number of guys. The legitimate ones that were had any credence would be Jack Williams and Bob Gibbons and Fred Stilley. And then it was Mr. Swan your first official IKKA or Ed Parker's version instructor coming from the Tracys? Or? What I'm saying is that the curriculum that we had in the NCKKA was a very 
say, early 60s Parker curriculum, because Mr. LeBounty, his first instructor was a guy named Steve Fox, who was a Tracy guy, because the organization, the IKK and the Tracys were in the IKK at the time, was getting started. Mr. Parker had a group of schools in Southern California, and the Tracys moved up into Northern California and started a group of schools there. And that's where Mr. LeBounty was. So he was first experience was under a Tracy-oriented instructor as well. And it wasn't that much different back then. I mean, the Tracys were basically doing the same thing that Parker was doing at that point in time. It's just that Mr. Parker continued to evolve his art for the whole time that he was alive. And when the Tracys broke away, they just kind of stayed with what they had. And I don't want to speak for the Tracy organization. I'm not that familiar with, you know, what they've done since. But at the time, it was pretty similar because they all came from Mr. Parker. Mr. Parker continued to evolve his art. As I said, the NCKKA continued to support Mr. Parker's organization as well in his efforts. In fact, we had him come to Texas and he did seminars. Mr. Swan had brought him to Texas and did some seminars. He was a guest at our annual bank back in 78. And we had put together a demonstration team. Mr. Solander put together a brown and black belt demonstration team. We did our demonstration at the banquet. And Mr. Parker invited us to go to the internationals and be part of the nighttime show at that year's internationals. So the first time I performed on stage at the internationals was back in 1978 as, as a member of the NCKKA demo team. So we were still very much involved in what Mr. Parker was doing, but our curriculum did not evolve is what I'm saying. When I was seeing him in seminars and I started going to seminars with Huck Planus and I went to a Mike Pick seminar, a friend of mine, Dennis Knatzer, had been in the NCKKA and he had left that organization and started training directly with Ed Parker. I started seeing some differences in what we were doing and what the art had evolved into. And I became more and more interested in looking at that evolution of the art and started exploring more of the things that had been developed. And eventually, I started bringing Mr. Parker into Austin twice a year for seminars. And he was always very generous with his time. Whenever I was here, he's asked me, what do I want to work on? What do I want to talk about? Got to the point where he indicated to me that if I would come into his organization, that I could become one of his personal students. That was a struggle for me because, as I said, Mr. Swan had taken me from Purple Belt through Fourth Black. So I had a, a very strong loyalty to Mr. Swan. But seeing the opportunity to have a chance to train with the founder of the system, I wanted to take that opportunity. So I talked to Mr. Swan and said, you know, explain to him what I wanted to do. And and he understood. He had seen me bringing Mr. Parker in for seminars. He said, well, you know, Brian, something that you got to think about is, you know, you live in Texas. He lives in California. How much time are you actually going to get with him? And I said, you know, I've taken that into consideration. I want to get what I can. You know, whatever time I can get with him, I want. And so I eventually became a student of Mr. Parker's a personal student, was uh, his personal student for the last several years of his life. And then when he passed... I was made regional director for the IKKA here in a seven-state area and served in that capacity for about five years. And then one of the things that I noticed was when Mr. Parker died, everybody started going off into their own camps, their own groups, and there wasn't as much interaction between people as there had been. Everybody was sticking to their own little associations and groups. And so I put a camp on in 1994. And I said, and I invited a bunch of people and I said, it doesn't matter what association you're in. It doesn't matter, you know, who your instructor is, right? This is just a chance for us all to get together and to train again. And I ended up having at that camp, Stephen LeBounty, Tom Kelly, Richard Planis, Frank Trejo, John Sepulveda, Bob Lyles, Barbara Hale was there, Jeff Speakman made it. I had 15 people who were fifth black or above. Dennis Knatzer was there, uh, Andre Sims. And, and at that point in time, this is 94, Fifth Black was, was a pretty, pretty high rank at that point in time. At that camp, I had about 150 people there, over 50 black belts. And the group got together. And, you know, I, I got all these guys to, all the instructors to come to the camp. 
And I didn't expect some of them to come, actually, because I didn't know them that well. My wife kept telling me, just ask, just ask them. And she, she'd throw out a name and I say, well, you know, I don't, I don't know him and I can't pay him anything to be here. So just ask him. And so, you know, I, I started asking these people and they, they kept saying yes. They kept saying yes. It was a kind of took off. We, we call it the American Temple Homecoming Camp. And does that still run to today? I still have a camp, but we haven't had a homecoming camp like that. I've got another, I've got a camp coming up in September of this year where I'm going to have John Sepulveda, Jeff Speakman, and Lee Wedlake, and my old instructor, Gary Swan, and Jack Autry. I have legendary fighters, Ray McCallum and Mikey Rowe Moore. I've got uh, Rob Zing of the U.S. Kempo team. And so this is going to be a big camp. I haven't had a real big camp like this in, in a while, but it's celebrating 1973 is me teaching martial arts here in Austin for 50 years. Um, I'm doing a bigger camp this year. But at the 94 camp, the black belts that were there, I mean, you know, the IKK had still trying to get together, but people had all fragmented. And they said, you know, look, we need some leadership. We need, you know. And so they petitioned Tom Kelly and Steve Labounty to go to ninth. You know, they said, we need some leadership. You guys are two of the, the most senior members that, that are in the art. And they had not taken a rank above seventh. They said, Mr. Parker gave me the rank. I'm not going to go above seventh. But the whole group petitioned them to go to ninth. And reluctantly, they agreed. And then the group also said, we need to form a unit for like a council, they said, of leadership. And the American Kempo Senior Council was formed at that camp. And it, six members on the executive board originally were Steve LeBounty, Tom Kelly, Richard Planis, Frank Trejo, Johnson Povina, and Bob Lyles. And that was the, the six original members of the executive board. Myself, Dennis Knatzer, and Ed Parker Jr. were put on the advisory board. And then shortly thereafter, Bob White, because his good friends, Stephen LeBounty and Tom Kelly were involved in this organization and they talked to him about it, came on board as well. And he became another member of the executive board. And the AKSC, American Kempo Senior Council, was in existence for about 10 years. And it was it was a good organization. And the thing I liked about it was it was the American Kempo Senior Council and the League of Kempo Organizations. Because a lot of these guys had their own organizations, but they realized that the unity of of getting together and working together was going to be a, a good thing for everybody. I have a American Kempo Senior Council patch that Mr. Sepulveda gave me. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've got one. I've got one too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, mine's a, here you go. This is nice to have. I didn't earn it. <laughs> Unlike yours. <laughs> one of the things that happened from the American Kempo homecoming camp is that you know, I was an IKKA regional director at the time, and the IKKA frowned upon what happened at the camp. Mrs. Parker said that I had facilitated the promotion of Steve LeBounty and Tom Kelly to, you know, ninth degree, which, which I didn't. It was an organic thing that happened there at the camp. I had the camp. I had no intention of having anybody go up in promotion that way. But anyway, I eventually the next year resigned my position from the IKKA. I started my own organization, the American Kempo Federation. You know, I've been the head of that organization since 1995. Who do you have in that organization, sir? <laughs> We're a small group. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're we a small group. When I first started, it was my school, and I had another school, a student of mine in Santa Fe, who had her school, and uh, her name was Lois Rail. Then we've had schools in Missouri, and we've had schools in Oklahoma, and we've had schools here in different parts of Texas. Right now, it's my school. And, I, and I've got a bunch of black belts that are out there, but they no longer have schools. None of them ever did this, you know, full-time. It was all part-time schools. Yeah. And so, you know, part-time schools come and, come and go as, as your life allows. You know, you, you have family responsibilities. You have job. You have work responsibilities. And, you know, your, your martial arts dreams sometimes have to go on, on the back burner while you're taking care of business. Part-time school up in Dallas, my student, Alan Gowdy, who's a fifth, he has a brown belt, has opened a club, and Alan is teaching at that club. My school, I have a number of different black belts around Texas. And then I got a group in Chile. 
right? We've actually got more more schools in Chile than we do in the United States right now. I have a group in Santiago. I have a group in Mina de Mar. Do you know what they're called? Do you know what they? Well, it's AKF Chile, and it's the AKF Chile Santiago group, the AKF Chile Vina de Mar group, the AKF Chile Conception group, and the AKF Chile Cornulaje. I think is is the way you say it, but it's but we have four different yeah four different schools in Chile. So you have a website? Are they can people if they're interested contact them on the website? You can get a hold of them on Facebook primarily, Facebook, right? Yeah. Just just go to AKF Chile. You'll see all of their stuff. And, you know, you can get a hold of me through American Kempo Federation. And there's also my website. My website is ancient. Where, in fact, I was talking to one of my guys earlier today, and he's going to help me revamp it. It was built in 95, and it hasn't been changed since. So, I mean, it needs a big up. 1995, the internet was still a boy. It was yeah. back in 1992. I had a, one of the three websites on the internet, and I was one of them. PC Woods was one of them, and there was another site up on the internet back in those days. But you had to hard code that. In yeah, a text, in everything a text on my, yeah, my yeah. whole website is, is in HTML, Yeah, you know, yeah. so I am, I don't know HTML, I can't code, so that's why it stayed the same for all these years, so now I've got one of my guys who's going to help me go ahead and, and uh, revamp it and put it into like a WordPress so I can update it on a regular basis, yeah. but the website is www.akf, American Kenpo Federation, akfkenpo.org. When you met Mr. Parker, was that at the demo you did? And what impressed you about when you met Mr. Parker? Have you got any great stories? You must have a hundred stories of working with Mr. Parker. I've got, or I've got special. a few good stories about my interactions with Mr. Parker uh, that I can share with you. The first time that, that I actually talked to him was on the phone. The NCKK schools in Arizona were chartering a bus to go out to, to the internationals and I bought a ticket on the bus and I flew out to Arizona uh, to, you know, travel with them to the internationals. But prior to that, I had a flyer for the internationals and it had, do you have any questions here? And it had a, a phone number, right? You know, I called the numbers and I, I forget what my questions were, something about divisions and I'm expecting to get some office and they say, you know, hello. I said, uh, yeah, my name's Brian Duffy and I'm calling from Austin, Texas. I got some questions about the tournament, the internationals. He says, ah, this is Ed Parker, Brian. Can I help you? Well, you know, what would you like to know? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, I got the man <laughs> talking to the, to the big guy. And so I asked him the questions. He was very nice. He said, well, we'll look forward to seeing you out here. You know, and so this was in early 70s, probably 74, 75. So that's the first time I talked to him. And then I saw him out there at the tournament. And I would see him. I went to the internationals maybe a dozen times between then and the, when he passed, before he passed. And I'd see him out there all the time on that. But a couple of stories. I was teaching a class at my studio during the day. It was a sparring class. I was fighting with the guys. And so phone rings. One of my guys says, I'll get it. And he bows off the mat, goes in the office. And so we're still we're still back there fighting. He's he's gone for a couple of minutes. And he comes back and he has this funny look on his face. I said, What's up, Ray? He goes, There's this guy on the phone who says he's Ed Parker. And I said, Okay, all right, well, I'll take care of it. You know, so I, <laughs> I go in the office, he goes back to fight. I said, Brian Duffy, can I help you? And he goes, Ah, Brian, this is uh, Ed Parker. Hi, Mr. Parker, how are you doing? You know, it's a very recognizable voice. Right. And I said, no, oh, hi, Mr. Parker. How you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm here with the Elvis. He was Elvis, you know, he was traveling with Elvis and Elvis was doing a show in Austin. He goes, man, I'm in town. I always like to check on the guys and see how they're doing. I said, ah, it's great, Mr. Parker. You know, uh, if you like, you can come down and see the studio. He goes, well, no, we're not going to have time for that. But I just wanted to check in. And we had a nice little conversation. And then I hang up and I, I go back out to the mat and Ray looks at me kind of funny. And he goes, was well, that really Ed Parker? I said, yeah, why? Because I told him, if you're Ed Parker, I'm Bruce Lee. <laughs> so, uh, nice, nice. <laughs> I said, okay. So years later, when I'm bringing Mr. Parker in for seminars and stuff, because that was, you know, that, that was late 70s. I started bringing him in in the early to mid 80s. I started bringing him. Started, <laughs> and Ray was, was back training with me again. <laughs> and I said, oh, Mr. Parker. 
I want to introduce you to somebody. You've spoken to him on the phone. This is my student, Bruce Lee. <laughs> and we had a good laugh about that. Nice. <laughs> Another story. I had started bringing him in, and he was invited to this tournament down south of San Antonio, a little town called Lytle. And as the special guest, so we, you know, we got a group together and we go down there, you know, to be at the tournament, be with him and all. We're there about early in the afternoon. My wife says, we got to go home. You know, I got some things I got to take care of. We ain't going home. You know, this, this is Mr. Parker. I want to stay here with Mr. And she goes, I'm serious. I have to go home. There's some things that, that need to be taken care of, you know, and she's not being real specific, but she goes, I, I've got some stuff I got to do. And I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I'm like, you know, you could be kidding me. And she goes, no, we got to go. And so, you know, we grab our kids, we put them in the, in the van and we, and we're driving back. And I'm so angry. I'm just fuming. And I'm going like, do you know who this man is? You know how, you know how, how seldom I get to see this, this guy, you know, I said, and, and I'm just, I'm just angry. And, and she's, and she's just going, I'm sorry, but there's some things that have to be done, you know? And she goes, uh, and we have to stop at the studio, you know, I, I can't remember if we went to the house first or then went to the studio, but she finally says, look, we got to go to the studio. There's some things I got to get. My studio was in the upstairs of a building at that point in time, a park. And I go in and I go up the stairs and when I get up to the top of the stairs and look over on the mat, there's a table there and Mr. Parker's there. And my students had planned a roast for me. And Mr. Parker was the honored guest for the roast for me. <laughs> so nice, and nice. so I forgave my wife because <laughs> she had set that up for me. What were some of the roasts that you got on the day? Can you can you share or not? Oh gosh, I, I can't remember. <laughs> Tell you the truth, it was you know this was thirty five years ago. So yeah, almost forty years ago now. I just remember Mr. Parker being there, and, and uh, turned out to be a good day after all. It was great. You were talking about the other story with Mr. Parker. Well, okay, last story. Yeah, when I became his personal student, first belt test we had about a year after I was his personal student, I had a oh, one guy was going for third and a couple of guys going for second and several people went for first and then round belts. My guys did real good, represented us well. At the end of that test, that's when he promoted me to fifth. He you know, made an announcement to the group that sometimes you're promoted based upon performance and sometimes you're promoted based upon the people that you produce. And, and that's when he pulled me up and he bumped me up to fifth. Well, one of my guys was supposed to test at that test but he was a police officer for Plano. Plano is a, a Dallas suburb. And he was on the SWAT team. And he was on call for that weekend, which means that he had to be, you know, stay in town and, and be available if the SWAT team need, need, was needed. And I said, well, okay, Brant, well, that's all right. I said, I'm going out about three weeks later to see Mr. Parker. You can come out with me. We can just have him test you out there. And he said, okay. We set that up. And so we fly out. And Mr. Parker picks us up from the airport takes us to the house, shows us, you know, I, I'd been in his house before, but, but gave Brant the, the whole tour. You would walk in and you know, open the front door and there's the big Elvis cape in a glass case. And there's the Elvis sunglasses that had EP across it. You know, he's always giving Mr. Parker stuff because he says, that's got your initials on it. Elvis Presley, Ed Parker, got your initials on it, right? Had a big EP ring with diamonds, same thing. Shows us the Cadillac in the garage that Elvis gave him, you know, so we're seeing everything and we're talking. And we're in his uh, living room. It's getting later. The afternoon's been going on. And I'm thinking, oh, well, we got we to get this test done. So, uh, remember, Mr. Parker, we, we still got to test Brand. And he goes, oh, that's right. Okay, have him dress out. <laughs> so he, he, I said, all right, Brant, go get in your uniform, right? He goes, gets his uniform. He comes back in the living room. And I'm sitting on the couch, Mr. Parker. He goes, run through his stuff. And so I'm calling things out for him to do. You know, Mr. Parker's watching and he's, you know, okay, that looks good. Yeah. And after it was over, he said, that's great. You know, he, he like Brent, Brent was big and strong and fought well. And he, he was, he was one of my good black belts. So I, I had no doubt he was going to do well. Finished. Mr. Parker gave us uh, an impromptu lesson on the four. And he said, okay, when you do this move, you know, and he went all through the form. He, you know, went from beginning to end and just, you know, giving us little details about things that we needed to be looking at. Here's what you're doing. What you need to do is this. It was great. You know, great lesson. Then when it's all over, right, boots him, gives him the kick and takes us into his office, pulls down from the shelf a blank certificate 
has these rub on letters, hand letters it, right? Or Brandt puts his name, his rank, and, you know, cuts out little red stripes for two stripes for the belt, does the whole certificate himself, signs it and hands it to Brandt, you know? So I had my student who was tested in his living room, went to his office and Ed Parker personally made out his certificate and signed it and gave it to him. That was a very, very neat experience for both him and me. He would have been feeling like a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> I understand you're involved with the change in the system, going to 16-technique system from the original 32s. Yes. I got into the IKKA, and I started looking at the way the material was structured. And I personally had some experience with, when I was in the Traco organization, we were on the 32 curriculum. There were 32 techniques on that. When I went into the NCKK, most of the most of the charts had about 20 techniques. There was one chart that had 28 techniques, but they were, you know, some of them had 24, but they, but they were right around the 20. The majority of them had about 20 techniques. And then I got into the IKKA and we had a yellow chart that had 10 techniques. And then for the very next rank, you required the student to do two and a half times as much material, 24 techniques. And to me, it looked like there was too much of a front end load to the material, right? To me, it, it seemed like it could be in a more stair-step progressive manner as far as how much material that you present to each student for their rank. So I came up with a curriculum restructure that has 10 techniques for yellow and then orange, purple, blue, and green each have 16 techniques. And then third brown, second brown, first brown, and black all have 20 techniques, right? Which comes up to 154 techniques. So your 154 base techniques are taught through first black instead of through second brown, okay? So after black, then you do extensions, 24 extensions for second black, 24 extensions for third black, 24 extensions for fourth black, 24 extensions for fifth black. So just stretch it a little bit more. I, I put this together. And I presented it to Mr. Parker. Timing's everything in life. He had just put out the Infinite Insights, which had been a five-year project, which delineate, put the 24 technique curriculum out as the curriculum to follow. When I presented it to him, which was the following year, right? The, the last printing of book five, I think is 87. And in 88, I'm sending him this, this curriculum restructure. So he looked at it briefly and just said, if this will help you, you can go ahead and do it. And I said, great. Thank you, sir. And that probably would have been it. Just would have been me and my studio doing that. Except about a year later, he contacted me and he said, we're working on a children's curriculum because there was no children's curriculum at that point in time. I want you to be part of that. And, and you know, we've got some people working on it. And I said, well, look, I've got a children's curriculum, but it works in concert with my 16 technique structure it does not work in concert with the 24 technique structure and he said okay send it back to me and send me the curriculum the children's curriculum with it so i can look at it and this time because it had something that that he was actively looking for he took his time to actually look at what i had done better and analyze you know the work i'd done he came back to me and he said i like this i like what you've done you know he goes you know one of the problems is that people who have been doing the 24 technique curriculum for a lot of years are not going to want to change. They're going to want to change to this, you know, I said, but I'm getting ready to start franchising schools again. And I want to use this curriculum in my franchise schools. And I said, that sounds great. Sounds great to me, boss. You know, talking to Edmund, his son, they had that on the plans to roll out the next year. Well, unfortunately he passed or they rolled it all out. You know, I lobbied for that curriculum when I was director, you know, regional director for the IKKA, but it, it wasn't really going anywhere with most of the people that were there. There's a funny story about it, though. I met John Sepulveda at Mr. Parker's funeral. I had heard of John Sepulveda and, and knew of him through Mr. Labonte and through one of my students, my old students who had come from California, trained with me through his brown belt years and then moved back to California and tested for black in the NCKKA there. But when he saw me moving into the Parker system, he shifted over to John Sepulveda school. So he was studying with at John Sepulveda school at that point in time. 
So I knew of John Sepulveda, but we met at, at Mr. Parker's funeral. The first time I, I saw him face to face, we talked, we got along together and we made plans to interact with each other. Right? And he was going to come out to my school, do a seminar. I was going to go out to his school for a little camp he was having. He was going to come back for my annual camp. And so he was coming to our place first. So he, he comes in, Mr. Parker died in, in December and it was June, I think, when he came in for, for the seminar. And when he gets there, he hands me this this folder. Well, it's not a folder, it's a manual, right? He says, have you seen this? And it was the Orange Belt Manual for the 16 technique curriculum, right, that Mr. Parker had given him, right? And I looked at it and I said, yeah, I wrote it. He goes, what? I said, yeah, I wrote this curriculum. He goes, really? He said, yeah. I said, yeah. And I pulled out my files and I showed him, you know, all the stuff I'd done, the letters I'd sent Mr. Parker. He goes, this is great. We've been looking for this for a long time. You know, so he was a big proponent of the structure. And, you know, it's the same curriculum. It's just a different structure is all it is, you know. And so, you know, his schools all use it. He's got one of the biggest organizations around. And then, you know, Eddie Downey, his student in Ireland, who has a European chemical Karate association, his students all use it. I saw Eddie and John out at uh, Bob White's last month for his annual charity event that he does. And Eddie was saying, yeah, you know, we, you know, we've made a couple of little modifications in some of the kids stuff, but you know, we love your curriculum. And so it's, it's gotten a lot of acceptance from a lot of people, but it's also gotten a lot of backlash from a lot of people. And then that say that if you don't do the 24, you're not doing what Mr. Parker wanted you to do. And that was what Mr. Parker told me. He says, you know, there's going to be people that are, that are not going to want to change. But So internationally, there's we have some people here doing the 24. I came through about five different versions of Kempo. So just having to keep going back to the start and revamping every time we did it. But that sort of helped me with who I am today. We ended up on the 16 Technique system, which is I, I liked it. It was good because it didn't didn't like you said load the front end because a lot of people drop out they get if you're doing the first right. two belts it takes forever to get through those techniques it's good I, uh, hats off to you for it sir i enjoyed it well it's worked well for for, for me and you know i, I have a, a facebook page which is the origin of the 16 2024 american chemical curriculum that's the name of the facebook page and it talks about how i it came about how you know i did the restructure and it shows the letters that I sent to Mr. Parker and the responses that he gave to me. And at the end, what I say is that the purpose of, of any curriculum is to effectively transfer the knowledge and the skill found within what you're trying to teach. And if you're doing that successfully with the 32 technique curriculum, great, use it. If you're doing it successfully with the 24 technique curriculum, great, use it. But for me, the 16 technique, you know, 16, 2024 structure works a lot better. I'm going to keep using it because I, I was not trying to be a rebel when I, uh, you know, pose that structure. I was trying to do something that I thought would be constructive to yeah, help. Innovative, and, like Mr. Parker wanted, right? Yeah. So, you know, whatever works for you, that's great. But it's all the same stuff. It's just how it's presented, you know, just the number of techniques that you teach the guy for each individual rank. It's all the same stuff. So tell us a, a little bit about yourself, sir. Everyone knows you do Kempo. Do you have any other hobbies? You know, I know Kempo is not your full-time gig. You're a little bit like a lot of us where we do Kempo in our not spare time. Um, well, Kempo was my full-time gig for uh, from 1973. I, I'm, I moved here to Austin from San Antonio to manage the school for Mr. Swan, managed the school for him for three years and then bought it from him and then continued to teach full-time up until the end of 1995, at which point in time I took a job with the U.S. Postal Service, became a mailman, and turned my studio into a part-time studio, teaching about four or five nights a week, delivering mail during the week, and continued to do that. I retired from the Postal Service in June of 2019 after 23 and a half years, and continued teaching for the next about year, year and a half, four times a week, and then COVID came and shut down our location. And now I'm teaching about twice a week. Very blessed to have a student who owns a building, who put a dojo in it, never started any classes there. So I offered to start teaching classes two days a week for him in the building. And that's kept my hand in it. I'm, you know, continuing to do it. So, so now I'm, I'm very part-time, just two times a week. 
you know, with an occasional workshop on the weekends for my guys. Didn't have a lot of, you know, when I when I was being a mailman and teaching karate, that, that didn't give me a lot of time for a lot of other hobbies. When I retired from the postal service, I bought a house, another house. It's actually the house next door to ours, which is a rundown rent house. And I spent the last three years remodeling and rebuilding it. So that kept me real busy for a while. And, and you know, now it's looking good. We're going to try to Airbnb it and get a little return on our, our investment for that. You're offering a special Airbnb package for your international guests and interstate guests where they can come and stay next door and do lessons with you as well. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> there you go. There's an idea. Write that down. Write that down. <laughs> Actually, I told my guys, I have coming to, to the camp in September, this coming September, seven of my black, black and brown belts from Chile are coming to the camp, you know, and I told them originally, you guys can, you know, come up, you guys can stay in the Airbnb, you know, and, you know, that way it's not going to cost you that much. And then what happened is my daughter, who's been living in Canada for about the last nine years, said she's moving back to Texas. And so she's going to be getting here towards the end of July, beginning of August, and she's going to stay in that house until she gets settled. So during the time that the camp is going on, my daughter will be occupying that house. So None of the instructors get to stay there <laughs> and, you know, and none of my Chilean guys get to stay there while I'll be in the hotel. But my camp last year that I had last September, I had all the instructors staying at the Airbnb. I had Dave Brock out and I had old Steve Cooper came. Mr. Swan came up from San Antonio, but he never stays overnight. And then I, Lee Wedlake came, he's in San Antonio now, so he doesn't stay overnight. But all the guys that came from out of town stayed at the Airbnb. So it, it was, it was great having a you know a place to put everybody tell us a little bit about your camp it's obviously open to anyone who decides i want to come down and learn some kempo from different practitioners is that still running you got a camp this september you were saying i have an annual camp in september every year and we've had a number of different people there in fact the first time i met graham elliott was at a camp in the either late 90s or early 2000s it was when the aksc was going on but that was one of my camps. He came over with, I believe, Lee Wells. I think he came over with Lee Wells at that point in time. You know, I've had so many people. Jose Maria Gutierrez from Spain came over. Of course, Eddie Downey has, has been to the camp. I've had some people from Chile, my guy from Chile. Sergio Correa, who's under Bob White from Chile, has come. Bob White's group has been there many times. Johnson Polo's group has been there many times. So whereabouts so, is the um, camp held? Now... The camp is a hotel camp. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, when you have a, a camp like that, most of the participants of the camp, I mean, you have some people that come from out of town and whatever, and you have black belts that come in. But most of the student base is based upon your own student population to support the camp. And the longer I was in the post office, the smaller my student base got to the point where it came to almost a club. And so I eventually had to stop renting out places and it became a in-house camp. I would do a series of seminars at my studio over the course of a weekend, right, for the camp. And that's the one we did in September as well. It was a Friday night, all day Saturday, half day Sunday camp at the studio. But this camp, because of all the people that I'm having, all, all the uh, big name instructors that are there, I'm expecting a, a bigger response. So I've gone ahead and I've rented it's the Holiday Inn Midtown here in Austin, and we rented their meeting rooms and you know banquet hall and things like that to have the camp there. And that's where all the instructors will be staying, and that's where my guys from Chile, I'm putting them up in rooms at, at the Holiday Inn Midtown. I've got a Facebook page. It's AKF Texas Spirit Camp is the Facebook page that has information on the camp. And it's got a link to the hotel if you want to make a reservation. Uh, anybody who's interested in that camp, they simply contact me either on Facebook or they can contact me through my email, which is duffy at akfkempo.org or call my studio number 512-444-9889 and just let me know that you're interested in coming to the camp. And what I do is I send you an invoice that you can pay online June and July to 275 and then starting in august it goes to 295 the actual you know cost of the camp is 295 but i'm giving pre-registration 
Nice. Yeah. Nice. So, I'll put a, I'll put a few links in the show notes for you so that people can click on the Facebook page and take them to your website to get in contact with you. That'd be great. You've probably noticed I've got the. Hey, we don't have anybody coming from Australia yet. Not yet, Peter. The plan is to make it. That's for sure, sir. So don't, don't worry about that. You can't get rid of me okay. that easily. <laughs> I've got. I've got. I'm actually wearing my camp shirt today because I, I, I see that a, I camp every year and then made it biannual because there's so much work to do. It was sort of inspired by everyone else's international camps because we're we're pretty isolated over here. We're a pretty big island. Everyone is about eight to ten hours away from each state from each other. So get wow. together is a really big. We're as big as America except we're you know got the population of LA. That's about it. So and everyone lives out on the outskirts of Australia. So there's not many along the coast. Yeah, along the coast. So I had a camp every year to try and bring everyone together, like people that learn from different instructors and get more exposure for different instructors and stuff. You know, that's gone downhill a little bit. Right. Yeah, it did. I, you know, I tell my guys, you know, I said, yeah, I, I'm very, I'm very comfortable in what I know and what I can teach you. However, you know, I, I don't know everything. I don't have, you know, everybody has their different take on, on things. So you need to expose yourself to different ideas and different ways of, of other people doing stuff. So that you can find out what's going to work best for you. And so I always encourage my guys whenever they have a chance to, if there's a seminar with a good instructor coming up, you know, go do it. Go see what they have to say. Go see what you, what you can pick up. You're not going to do everything exactly the way I do, although you should, but you're not going to do everything <laughs> exactly the way I do. Yeah. So, well, so go find out if there's some other good. Stuff. Well, we always start the preface of every seminar or camp or anything with, we're just going to provide you another way to do something. And the right way right. for you to do it is the way your instructor tells you how to do it because <laughs> he's the one that's going to test you, right? <laughs> Tell us, how do, you, how do you stay motivated and continue to progress in your martial arts journey? Well, it's changed over the years. You know that stays that that differs depending upon what stage of the of the art you're in. You know when you're when you're a student coming up, what motivates you is getting to your next rank. So I remember that all I concerned myself with when I was coming up through the ranks was just the next belt, the next belt. And it wasn't until I uh, I got second brown. When I made second brown, then I thought to myself, God, there's only one more rank, and and then I'll be going for black. You know, and I I'd, I'd never even thought of myself as being a black belt. At that point in time, but right then it became a you know reality. So, geez, you've just got one more step, and then your next step, you're going to go for black. So, at the beginning, usually it's the belt progression that way. And then what happened with me is I got into competition. I started doing tournaments, and tournaments became very motivating for me. Over my career, I I had some good success in in tournaments. I mean, I I was a regionally rated competitor in forms and weapons here in the. Texas and Louisiana area back early 80s. In the 90s, when I was uh, IKK regional director, the regional director meetings were at the internationals, the weekend of the internationals. So I said, well, if I'm going to go out there for the for the regional director meeting, I might as well compete because I, I had stopped competing. So what, what sort of weapons did you get involved in? Because Kempo doesn't um, really have weapons in its system. We learn to defend against weapons. We have staff set. That's something I well, suppose... Yeah, you have to realize I was in the National Chinese Kempo Karate Association, which tended to emphasize more of the Chinese aspects as well. So uh, coming up through the ranks, we had the well, we had the, the Parker staff set that we did, right? Yep. But then we had a spear set that we did as well, and then there was a saber set. And then my instructor, uh, Gary Swan, he also he went and studied with Buck Sam Kong, uh, who was a pretty well known Hungar stylist here, and he learned all of the original sixteen you know, Shaolin weapons, right? Long weapons and short weapons. Swan also became a registered acupuncturist. I mean, so, you know, he's, he's done a, like I say, he's, a, he's an amazing gentleman, a great martial artist. And from him, I learned saber, I learned double sabers. I learned uh, tiger fork. What's a tiger fork? It, it's like a trident. Right. It, it's like a spear with, with a, with, you know, a, oh, yeah. a ring yeah, yeah. as well. And, you know, the way he explained it to me is, is it's called a tiger fork because they would, would hunt tigers with it. So they would, uh, you know, when a tiger was, was causing havoc to, to a village or whatever, they'd stick one guy out in the clearing with, with this tiger fork, right? And they the rest of them would beat the bushes, you know, to, to get the tiger out into the clearing. And when it was all the noise and stuff was agitated the tiger to the point where when it came into the clearing, it would charge the first thing that it saw. 
So they, they, he said they, they started originally with a spear, but what would happen is the tiger would would leap at the guy and pale himself with the spear, slide down the spear and rip the guy up. You know, so that wasn't working. So they came up with the tiger fork, which had the, the trident portion on it, where they'd set it in the ground, right? The tiger would leap on it and it would it would not slide down the, the shaft of the spear and they let it go over their head and then they take off and the and the sides of the trident which were sharpened blades would embed themselves into the the tiger's ribs and while it was slashing it itself to get rid of it it was actually you know to get it off of them it was actually cutting them up worse and so that's why they called it tiger fork you know okay and it was one of the original chinese weapons so i learned all those and i competed i never competed with the tiger fork but i competed with the staff before and the spear and the saber and the double sabers i competed with double sabers as well and then I started studying Japanese sword. There was a guy here in town, well, in San Antonio, a guy in San Antonio named uh, Chuck Tatum, and he knew Japanese swords. He had been, he had actually gone to West Point Military Academy in New York, and on the weekends, he would go into New York City, and he would study Japanese martial arts there, and he picked up the Japanese sword. So, you know, we always called him the Texas Samurai, because he was the one that tournaments always was doing Japanese sword. Well, Mr. Swan, his partner, Tony Martinez, not the Tony Martinez in uh, Utah, but another gentleman named Tony Martinez, who, who was uh, also came in when Mr. Swan did to buy the school I was at. Mr. Martinez came in and bought a school as well. And I think he bought two schools. But anyway, uh, Mr. Swan, Mr. Martinez, and this guy, Chuck Tatum, would have a three-hour class on Friday nights, workout, just the three of them. Mr. Martinez was into yoga, so he'd teach an hour of yoga. And Mr. Swan would teach an hour of Chinese weapons, and then Mr. Tatum would teach an hour of the sword. At the time, when I was in the NCKKA, one of the requirements for each additional rank was that you learned a new weapon. And you, Mr. Swan would let you choose. What what would you like to learn? And so I said, I'd, I want to learn Japanese sword. So he said, okay. So he, he showed me, the, the Mr. Tatum had taught him and showed me the cuts, you know, that he had taught him. And then when I was testing for third, you had to make up a form with a weapon. And I used the Japanese sword, and that was my weapons form that I did. I took those cuts that that he had shown me, and I put them together in, in a form. And then I started competing with that form. And, you know, the Iaido is, is the art of the draw and the return, right? Draw, cut, click uh, the blood from the blade, and then return to the scabbard. So in the form that I made up for my rank, there was a lot of, a lot of draws, cuts, and then returns showing that skill set. When I went out there and started competing here in Texas, well, you know, they weren't real knowledgeable about what was going on. The judges and they kept, you know, the criticism was all he does is take it out and put it away, take it out, put it away. Right. So uh, I changed it a little bit and I left several of the returns out and then just shifted to different directions and just used the sword. There's still a number of draws and cuts there, but I, I didn't put as many in. And I competed with that for a number of years and did very well with it. In fact, in the late 2007, 8, and 9, I was a member of the U.S. Kempo team uh, competing in the World Kempo Championships. 2007 was in Budapest, Hungary, and 2008 was in Faro, Portugal, and 2009 was in Bucharest, Romania. In 2007, I did a spear and a saber, did some forms with the spear and the saber, and at the time, everybody else was doing hardstyle weapons. They were very hardstyle oriented at that time. So the next year, I brought the Japanese sword. And I took a silver medal in the weapons division of the tournament with the Japanese sword. I enjoyed it. and It was, it was a good weapon for me, and, and I got a lot of traction out of my competition career. You know, competition was a motivating factor for me a number of, of ways, and for a number of years as well. And then when I started making the shift to studying Mr. Parker's material more in depth, that became another motivating factor. You know, getting a, a better understanding of how the system is put together, right? The, the principles and the concepts, broader knowledge base of what he was thinking of when he put it all together. And that was a motivating factor, right? Right there. And then all throughout that time, you know, I had my school. And so when you have a school, you make money, pay the bills, staying on top of the business. What's the newest trend in, you know, how to generate income, how to market your school. Those are all motivating factors as well. So, you know, it's been a number of things, different things over the years. Now I'm just at that point where I'm, I'm wanting to, you know, share with my guys as, as much as I can. 
so that they can continue on. Turned 70 last year, so I think I got about another good 10 years in me, hopefully, to be able to teach. Want to get some people in a position to where they can go ahead and carry the torch after I'm gone. Staying in shape is a motivating factor for yes, me as well. Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. The two times that I, I teach every every week, we do a good strong calisthenics workout with a lot of core stuff, and we do you know cardio. We do we do pad work. We do kicking shields, you know, and I do all that with the class. I make them I make them do it with me because if they're not there. I'm probably not going to do it. So it's it's great for me. Yeah. I'm not going to ask them to do something that I won't do, but it, it keeps me working out yeah. like I should yeah. be. Nice, nice. And that brings us to the end of this captivating first part of a two-part episode on the Mind Sensei podcast. We hope you found this conversation with esteemed ninth degree Kempo Master Brian Duffy, the founder of American Kempo Federation, both enlightening and inspiring. In this episode, we explore Master Duffy's incredible journey in the world of Kempo Karate, from his early training under Sifu Gary Swan to his remarkable achievements in tournaments, earning a staggering 157 trophies. We gained a glimpse into his deep-rooted passion for the arts and his unwavering commitment to excellence. But our journey doesn't end there. Be sure to join us for the second part of this conversation in next week's episode, where we'll dive even deeper into Master Duffy's insights on martial arts, personal development and self-discovery. To ensure you don't miss out on the continuation of this incredible discussion, make sure you subscribe to the Mind Sensei podcast. By subscribing, you'll receive notifications of future episodes, keeping you in the loop and connected to our engaging conversations. We extend our heartfelt gratitude to Master Brian Duffy for sharing his wisdom and experiences with us. His contributions to the world of Kempo Karate are truly remarkable and we're honoured to have him as our guest. Thank you for joining us in the first part of a two-part episode. We look forward to welcoming you back next week as we continue our exploration with Master Brian Duffy on the Mind Sensei podcast. Remember, never stop seeking knowledge and unlocking the limitless potential within your own mind. And for those wishing to reach out to Ninth Degree Master, Mr. Brian Duffy, you can reach him at Brian Duffy's Kempo Karate in Austin, Texas. Website, akfkenpo.org, the American Kempo Federation. They're also on Facebook under the American Kempo Federation and under Brian Duffy's Kempo Karate. Or you can follow the links in the show notes. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei podcast. I'm your host Peter Taz and you've tuned in to the Mind Sensei podcast from Down Under. I want to take a moment to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the Mind Sensei podcast. We appreciate your support and hope our show has been both informative and entertaining for you. If you haven't already done so, we would like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. By subscribing, you'll be the first to know when we release new content and you'll have access to all of our past episodes. We also encourage you to visit our website at mindsensei.au where you can find additional resources related to martial arts. On our site, you can read blog posts, videos, and learn more about the guests we feature on our show. Finally, we'd like to thank our guests for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. Without their generosity, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei podcast down under. We hope that you continue to join us on this journey through the world of martial arts.